Welcome to this week's presentation from Bethesda, a church community where anyone can belong. We hope that the following presentation encourages you in your faith journey. Thanks for listening. I just gotta say, I just love this church. I love, uh, I love, I look forward to Sunday. I hope you guys look forward to Sunday as much as I look forward to Sunday. And uh, by the look of some of you, some of you look like you're, you're happy to be here. Others got to work on that. Got to work on that. But this is the best place we could be today. Amen? And uh, it's so good that we can come together as the church. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a moment. That we, we say we come to church, but really we come to the gathering, the people which make the church, Right? We're thankful for this building. We're just talking about our building. We're thankful we have a place to gather and a place that we have ministries that, that go from week to week. And we're thankful for that. But most and, most and first and foremost is the fact that you're here and I'm here and we're here. And that is why uh, I'm, I'm so excited. Um, last Sunday, if you were with us, I just got to say, I didn't really plan to say this. But I just thought last Sunday was an incredible gathering. Um, right from the beginning of our morning right to the end of our night. Uh, a number of you joined us. We had about, I guess, about 150 maybe come out Sunday evening last week for what we had, uh, we called Encounter. Uh, it was just a night of worship, prayer, and vision. Wow. If you were here in the place, you would know what I, what I mean. It was incredible. And the conversations that I've had this week with a lot of people, that's most, a lot of you are in this room, and you'll, some more will be in the room at 1115. But many who came, um, I know that God met with people uh, in that gathering, and, and so I'm just thankful what the, the Lord's doing and what the Holy Spirit is doing in hearts and lives, and, um, and yeah, he deserves the glory, amen, and the praise, and so uh, that's what we do, we point it to him. Uh, this morning, we're continuing this, this uh, new, I guess, teaching series or preaching series, you can call it, and we wanted to lean into this word, for, everyone say for, and uh, we're going to be here for a while talking about this in a couple different regards. We kind of started with really talking about, for the first few weeks, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, knowing what we're for, knowing what it is we're for. <clears throat> I think it's important that we do that and understanding why we believe that God is for people and for our community and that we need to be for our city. We're going to be leaning into that for a few weeks. As we approach Easter, we're going to, we're going to lean into the fact that Easter is for everyone, Right? And that message of the gospel and the message of the cross is for everyone. And so we're going to gather. And at that very, I think, pivotal and crucial time of year where we can just, uh, just gather a, a lot of people and, and speak truth, I'm praying that God is going to bring uh, many people to know him uh, during our, our Easter season. I'm not, I don't want to wait till Easter. He can do it right now. But I know Easter is going to be a, a special time for the church. So be praying for that. And then as we approach closer to May, we're going to lean into the fact that, um, that, that God is for uh, the world, and we're going to lean into our missions emphasis month of Alpharama and look at what God is doing, not just here in St. John's, but really all over the globe. Uh, we believe God is for the world, and so we're going to be leaning there for a while. You see, many people are familiar with what the church is against rather than what the church is for. We want to change that for so long. The church has been known in culture and society many times for, for what it's against. And we want to change the conversation because we want to tell people that, about the things that the church is for. Because we believe God is for you. And, and, and God has a plan for your life. 
And so we're going to be leaning into that. There have been a couple key questions, and, and we've been talking about four St. John's, and, and we've been leaning into that for a few years now. And, and to be honest, there's been a couple key questions that have guided us along this vision path, if you want to call it. And, and it's something that we, we, we took as a team out of a conference we were at, and a friendship or a relationship, I just should say, we've, we've uh, been building with, with certain people, and, and it just inspired us in a certain way. It met us where we were and kind of helped uh, guide us and give us the, the, the guardrails to, to kind of lead through some, some more vision. And so one question in particular that really caused us to want to clarify and clearly communicate our mission and vision, vision of being for St. John's or for Torbay or for Flat Rock or Portugal Cove, St. Phillips or, or Paradise, wherever you might come from, we're, we're there too. Uh, the, one of the key questions was simply this. As a church, what do we want to be known for? What do we want to be known for? I think that's an important question to ask. Because we state our vision and our vision and our mission, sorry, is, is that we want to be a church that helps people who might even feel like they're far from God to lead them into a relationship where they can become fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's our mission. And so, yes, that's what we want to be for. We want to be for people. And, and really, it comes down to how we accomplish that. We want this city to know that we're a church, that we're here, and that we are for them. Last Sunday, if you were here with us, Pastor Bruce uh, just kind of launched this series, and I thought it was so important last week, and I, I listened to it again this week, I thought it was so important to introduce this series like he did, because in order to be a church that's for, we need to reestablish or be reminded that, uh, of what truly is the foundation for everything that we do. And, and the foundation of what everything that we do is built upon our love for Jesus. That's the foundation. And last week we looked at the letter uh, to the church that was, that was written in, in the book of Revelation. It was a letter to the church of Ephesus that, that John penned. And it was a letter that, that honored them, first of all, talked about the good things they were doing, for everything they persevered through, for the impact and influence and incredible history they've established at a church. And it feels good, feels good, feels good. And then all of a sudden he says, but this one thing I have against you. And he kind of outlined, Pastor Bruce done it so well, this one thing I hold against you, you have lost your first love. You have allowed an erosion to occur in your foundation. And he brought the church back. And you see, the church had become apathetic in some ways to the mission of the church, which is always about people. The mission of the church is always meant to be about people, and they had replaced also having a personal relationship with God, something that was experienced, to uh, they've, they've turned that into something that was more like a working relationship with God. It was more of a concept to understand rather than a relationship to have with God. And, and so they lost their intimacy with, with God. And so there's a number of other things that were unpacked last week, but at the, the bottom line, God was calling the church of Ephesus back to their first love, to rekindle their relationship with God in a way they were once, where they were once again experiencing his presence in their lives. And out of this relationship and love for God, they could once again be as effective as they could be as a church in their city. But they had to get back to the foundation so foundational in being a church that is for St. John's. It's important that we don't lose sight of our first love, amen? We gotta make sure we don't lose sight of our first love. 
A church that has, Pastor Bruce said this last week, a church that has a passion for the community is first a church that has a passion for Jesus. And that's so important. It's important that we always, first and foremost, keep Christ at the center of everything we are and everything we do as a church. You see, as a church and as leadership, we don't just want to make our own plans and then say, oh, by the way, God, this is what we plan to do. Would you bless it? That's not how we believe we should operate. But we want to make sure that God is leading his church and that we're listening to what he has to say and that we follow his lead. And so that's what we're praying for. And if we do that, I believe we can be the best representation that we can be of Jesus in our city for our city. Are you with me? Some of you are. Seven. That's good. We'll work on it. You see, this was God's intention all along. God's intention all along was that the church would be built upon the foundation of Christ Jesus. That was his plan all along when he sent his son into the world. That he, Jesus would become the foundation of it all. You see, in biblical times, a cornerstone, I, I dug up this picture, I thought it was interesting, but a cornerstone was used as the foundation and the standard for which everything else in a building was constructed. The cornerstone would be which, with which everything was constructed by. Once, once that was in place, the rest of the building would conform to the angles and the size of the cornerstone. In addition to that, if it was removed, the entire structure would collapse. That's why Jesus is so, that's why it's important that we keep Jesus as the cornerstone because if Jesus is removed from the equation, everything else will crumble. It's so important that we know and we understand and we make sure that Jesus is, is, is the cornerstone of everything we do. In the Old Testament, I mean, this is hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. There were actually uh, what we refer to as messianic prophecies. There were prophecies about the coming Messiah that would happen uh, in the future. And, and they spoke of the Messiah as the cornerstone. If you look at a number of examples, but Isaiah 28, 16 says, Behold, I am the one who, has laid, uh, who was laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Psalm 118, 22 speaks of the coming Messiah, saying, The stone that the builders rejected has become our cornerstone. The very one that would be rejected and despised, he'll become our cornerstone. He was prophesied about. And then, of course, after Jesus came and after he became and was known as the Messiah, many other gospel writers would go on to write about Jesus as the cornerstone. There was this really cool scene in Scripture that I love uh, when I read it and I come across it because it just, it just gives you an idea of what the conversation might have been like at times when Jesus and his disciples were walking along the dusty roads of, of in this, in this um, particular scene, Caesarea Philippi. And, and I just imagine that they're walking down the road. It's probably a hot, dry day. And they're just, just you know, just traveling because there was no, no bikes, no electric bikes, no, no cars, no Uber, taxis, none of that going on. And so they would walk oftentimes. And they're about 150, I think I studied, about 150 miles north of Jerusalem in that area, Caesarea Philippi. And as they're journeying, there's a scene in Matthew uh, chapter 16 where this amazing conversation happens between Jesus and his disciples. And, and he asks them this question. It's an important question. And he, he says this. He says, guys... Who do people say that I am? And so they're walking along, and some of the disciples start responding, and, and some say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah. Like, they're, they're, they're talking about different prophets, and they're making some guesses about who people say that I am, and Jesus is probably taking it all in, and then he says, he stops, and he turns to them, 
And I thought this was such a cool scene. He looks at his disciples eyeball to eyeball. He says, but who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter, who was never slow to speak, speaks up in that moment. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus stops. He said, that's right. And he goes on to say, Peter, in fact, you didn't even come up with this answer on your own. This was revealed to you by heaven. See, up to that point, Jesus hadn't told them those details. But Peter had this revelation from heaven. And in that moment, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. And he goes on to say, and on this rock, which we believe is on this statement that you have just made, the fact that, 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 upon, you know, that, that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, upon that, upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this truth, I will build my church. Of course, the Catholic uh, uh, denomination, for they would, would say that it's up on Peter, and you can look at this translation in different ways because Peter's name means rock. But based on what happened and based on the translation of the two words and based on Jesus being the true cornerstone, we believe that he's referring to the statement that Peter made. But either way, he says, upon this rock, Peter, upon this, I will build my church, and even the gates of hell won't be able to stop it. And they continued on. The disciples were probably like, okay, let's keep going. It's getting hot. <laughs> and I think Matthew maybe stopped and said, guys, that sounded important. Maybe I should write this down. You, John, do you think that was important? And he took notes of what Jesus just said, and I'm glad he did. Because it's important to know this statement. Just imagine this was a prediction of us, of the church. And one thing that's important to understand when Matthew wrote this down is that when he, when Matthew wrote his letter in, in, in the original Greek, and Jesus was probably speaking Aramaic, and he wrote it in the Greek, he used this word church. And he wrote this word that he used for church, and it's ekklesia. Ekklesia. And do you know what that word actually means? If you were to translate that from the original text, that word ekklesia literally means gathering or congregation. That's what that means. I'm going to build my gathering of believers. I'm going to build a congregation. And, and something happened along the way, and, and if you study church history and you read about this, uh, so I've heard some people uh, call this the tragedy of translation, because as time went by, this word ecclesia, which means congregation or gathering, it didn't actually get translated into our English Bibles properly. Instead, there was this German word that was, that was superimposed, the German word from which we get church actually in that language means the Lord's house. The Lord's house. Instead of church ecclesia, the gathering or the congregation, it was, it was superimposed this other translation, and ecclesia actually didn't get there. It got replaced with this German derivative of the word the Lord's house. But the thing is, you see, it's important to understand this because Jesus didn't predict a place. He predicted a people. He didn't predict an establishment or just an institution called the church, but he predicted a gathering of people, a congregation of people that would gather in his name. He was saying, I'm going to build my people. There's going to be a Jesus gathering, an ecclesia, a gathering or a congregation, and nothing will be able to stop it. And it's so interesting, again, in church history, if you study, William Tyndale translated the first Bible from Greek to English. 
William Tyndale was the one to do that, and this was back in the 16th century. And when he did that, he gets, he's translating from the original Greek to English for the first time ever in history, putting the, the, the original text in English. And he gets to this word ekklesia, and he says, uh-oh, this actually means something different than what others see it as. And, and he actually wrote the word congregation. That's what the, 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 the literal meaning was. I'm going to build my congregation, and the gates of hell won't be able to stop it. And actually, if you read about William Tyndale, because of his translations, the institution of the church seen him as being a heretic in some ways, and he was actually taken, and he was, he was strangled to death over this stuff. And he was burned, and his Bibles were burned. And this word church has been the word church ever since. I'm not suggesting we change the word church. I'm not putting myself out there like that. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I do believe that one of the things we can do is to understand that Jesus predicted a growing gathering of people. Not a building, not a place, not a physical, geographical location, but a people. Jesus predicted a people, and the church was never meant to be just about a place. And that's why Jesus said, and we quote it all the time, you would hear Jesus say, where two or three are what? Gathered. In my name. There I am. In the midst. When people gather together, this is why I believe before we can truly be effective as a church that's being for the community, first we need to be for one another. And that's where we're going today. Before we can be effective as a church for the community, I believe it's important as the gathering as the congregation, that we are for one another. Everyone say one another. I believe that the primary activity of the early church was being for one another. I do. It was purely relational. Which should make sense, I mean, because if the church is going to be a growing gathering of people that are connected to each other, then it's going to be about relationships. It's going to be about one another. And so it makes sense that when you look at the early church, I mean, that the primary activity of the church was being for one another. You see, like the church of Ephesus that was called back to its first love, Jesus. You see, if, we're truly, if we truly love God, Scripture goes on to tell us that Scripture says that we're to obey his commands or to obey his teaching. I mean, John 14, 15 says, Jesus said himself, if you love me, so if Jesus is, is the center of it all, if we as a church, if, if Jesus is the foundation, if we love him as our first love, if he's the center of it all, he says, you'll keep my commands. Uh, in a few verses later, in verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. Now, there are a lot of teachings and a lot of commands that Jesus gave in his lifetime during his ministry. And he shared many along the way with his disciples. But if you start to unpack what was at the core of what Jesus was teaching them and the way the early church functioned, if you look at the history of the early church, you would see that one thing is very clear, and that is they were for one another. They were for one another. I don't have the time this morning to unpack all of these scriptures, but there's a common theme throughout the New Testament that kind of looks like this. You can go to the next slide. Ephesians 4.32 talks about that. You were to forgive one another. Romans 15, 5, 13, accept one another. Galatians 6, 2, care for one another. Hebrews 3, 13, 
Encourage one another. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. And as I was looking at these, go back for a second. If you look down, F-A-C-E-S, faces. Pastor Bruce, write it down. There's a sermon series coming, maybe. (laughs) Just stood out. Next page, next one. Bear one another, Colossians 3.13, restore one another, Galatians 6, one love, one another, John 13.34, brill. <laughs> don't, don't. <laughs> There's so many times one another is mentioned in the New Testament. So many times we see that phrase, one another, one another, one another, one another. And I think the last one, John 13, 34 kind of can serve as a basis for all others that we're, we ought to love one another because I think the rest follows for to love one another. You see, that text, John 13, 34, the context around when that, that was written was Jesus and his disciples came to the Passover meal. This is where they gathered around the table and, uh, and shared in communion together, which we're going to do in just a few moments. And as he's there with his disciples and, and they gather and Jesus actually uh, washes the feet of his disciples because he knew he wanted to illustrate some things. He knew that his time was short with his disciples. He was modeling some things to them. Soon after this meal that they were about to share together would come his arrest and then crucifixion and so on. And Jesus knew this, so whatever he was going to tell them during these last moments around this table, the things he was about to share with them, I think that these were critical things that he wanted them to remember, that he did not want to forget. So as he's going to that table, I'm sure he's just thinking, what is it that I need to leave with them? And this teaching or this command was something that would certainly be noteworthy. And this is what Jesus says as, as, as they're sharing with one another. John 13, 34, a new command I give you. He looks around at the table. He said, you know, you've, there's been a lot of commands. You know the commandment, commandments from the, the law. You know all of this. But he says, the new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must, sorry, typo, love one another. And then, this is why I think it's so important that we see the importance of getting this right. Because by being for one another, not only does that create health and relationship and community for those who are part part of the church, but it actually, it goes on to say that Jesus goes on to say that by this, by loving one another, everyone, everyone say everyone, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. Hmm. You see, the hallmark of the church or one of the keystones of the church, the thing that ought to catch the attention of the world around us is how long, how well, sorry, that we get along with one another. How we treat one another. How we care for one another. All the things that were listed a moment ago and more. It's so important that we are for one another. This is not saying we all have to look like one another. Heaven forbid you all look like me. It's not saying we have to do exactly and always agree and always say the same things. And all. It's not about uniformity as much as it's about unity in the body. That at the end of the day, we can bring a diverse group of people together called the church who have all kinds of different histories and backgrounds and come from all different places, but we can all gather under one banner and one name and one Lord. And that's a beautiful thing. 
And it's one thing to come together and gather in a big room like this that we do on a Sunday morning a couple times. And this is important. I, I, I think coming together as a church is so important. But to be honest, this isn't the best context for us to practice being for one another. Being for one another actually starts taking place more so after we walk out of these doors. And it's so important that it's not just when we come, because when we come here, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a, bit, a little busy. There's, it can be chaotic at times. Parents, you're thinking about your kids. You leave this room. You got to get your kids. You got to go there. There's so much to think about sometimes. You come in. We sit in rows. We take a moment to say hi to our neighbors. Outside of that, we don't get a chance to actually be for one another or to help one another or to show how we love one another in practical ways. But that happens outside of these walls. There's so many ways that we need to be for one another. And that's why I just want to take a moment to encourage and just kind of celebrate every small group leader and host and person, those who invest in the lives of our children in their small groups, our youth small groups on Friday nights, and, and they take place all over this city, in homes, in schools, in coffee shops, in, at, at Memorial. There's so many places where people gather together as the church, and they care for one another. Every week I hear stories of how people were helped by one another. It's incredible. I wish we could all just have a list and start reading them because it's incredible how you as the church care for one another. Because you realize the truth of the matter is that one person or two people or even five people or ten people can't care for all the people that are connected to this church. That's why it's so important that we have various spans of care that, that we know that there are people able to help one another. And last Sunday night was again another opportunity for us to come together as a church where we could bear one another's burdens. That we could, when someone hurts, we all hurt. When someone celebrates, we all celebrate. And there was that sense in the room. That's why for small group leaders, I just want to say that you are primary. That that ministry, that small group ministry in our church, that gatherings all over the city are not secondary to what we do, but they are primary in what we do. Our Sunday school teachers, our group leaders, they're primary. The primary activity of the early church was being for one another. It was. Because the early church, you see, they understood this and they got this right because they had a compassion and a generosity and they had this willingness to love one another. I mean, for their, that time in history, it was unprecedented to see what was happening with the gathering of the church, with what Christians were doing in the community. It was unprecedented. When there were people who were sick and instead of saying, don't go near them, get away from me, Christians would go to the hurting. They would go to the sick. They would go to those in need for, for, for orphans and widows and, and people who were being segregated from society. The church was the one that went to that and met that need because proximity is important in the church. It's hard to care for someone from a distance. We need to get proximate to the hurts and the needs around us to truly be effective. And that's what the early church did so well. It was the hallmark and the driving force of the church. It was the thing that grabbed the attention of the community, and it should be today as it was then. It captured the world's attention now. I believe it captures the attention of the world today when the church is being for one another. It's powerful. 
is powerful. And as the team prepares to come back, at the beginning of this message, I stated one of the key questions that has helped us guide, uh, help guide us along this in our vision. And it's that question, what do we want to be known for? It's important that we answer that question. It's important that we know what we want to be known for as a church. Do we want to be known as a church that seems very to itself, closed doors, hard to get to know? You know, is that what we want to be, or do we want to be known for our compassion, our love, and our generosity, our open-handed, no strings attached, we just love you, we love the community around us, we're here to serve you. I want to model ourselves after how Christ modeled it for us. So it's important, what do we want to be known for? And that kind of helped us, guide us along what, what our guard is, our vision and our, and our values are as a church. That's why we value certain things. And, and if something falls outside of those values, maybe that's not our, what, what we're about as a church. But there are so many things that we are about, and that's, that's helped us over the last number of years. But the second question is a follow-up question, and this follow-up question is really more important than the first question. It's not just what do we want to be known for, but what are we known for? What are we known for? It's important to know. Because I've been, I've been here for a, a little while now. I've been able to, over the last, going on seven years, six and a half years, to make relationships, build inroads in our community, get involved in different ways. And I will say that when I came here to today, the amount of times and, and places where I make connections and, and, and hear about Bethesda or someone talk about it in some way or some, it's unbelievable the influence that you have in this community. It's unbelievable. It seems that everywhere I go, I see the influence of your church and our church in the city around us. It's powerful. You see, the two questions, what do we want to be known for and what are we known for? When we can close the gap to what we want to be known for and what we are known for are not two different things altogether, but there's actually a lot of similarities. We're, that means we're accomplishing something. That means we're on vision, that we're on the mark with where we want to go, and we can more effectively fulfill the mission and vision of the church. If you want to be known for something, but you're known for something else, well, there's something wrong. There's, a, there's something missing if, if I want to be known for this, but this is all I'm known for. But when that comes together, it's a powerful thing. And I just want to, again, and this is not for the sake of boasting in any way, although we do boast in Christ, and he is doing his work through his church. But I want to encourage you as a church that the things that you do the time that you give, the efforts that you put in are making a difference. They are. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about our church community, please visit our website, Bethesda.ca, and consider joining us for a gathering soon.